Welcome back to the LT Guitarist podcast with me, your host, musician and music educator, Liam Taylor, sharing stories and nuggets of wisdom from my life as a musician so far. It's not over yet, I am still alive, and this time I'm outside. I've missed being outside, it's sunny. Anyway, today's episode is an interview with musician and comedian Jay Foreman. If you're aware of Jay's work already, you are probably aware of his successful YouTube channel, Jay Foreman, with shows such as Map Men, and of course, and of course, his back catalogue of hilarious music that he's uploaded throughout the years. I first met Jay in 2019 when we recorded an episode of the Conversation Hat podcast. You can go find the Conversation Hat podcast basically wherever you get podcasts. It's like this, except a little bit more sweary and a little less factually accurate. Having had a good chat with Jay on the Conversation Hat, I wanted to uh, get to know him a little bit more, specifically about his background as a performer, how he got into music, his writing process as a musician, the difference between performing for adults and children. So I was really pleased that he came to our Cambridge studio to record the interview which we originally released back in uh, November. It was towards the end of 2019 anyway. So I started by asking Jay to introduce himself, which is sort of what I've done, but now you're gonna hear him do it. Hi, my name's Jay Foreman and I do YouTube and I do music. Regular music or funny music? That, that question implies that um, music that is uh, not funny is not regular or vice versa. <laughs> For a comedian, it wouldn't be. Well, when I started, um, I would have called it regular music. I was mm -hmm. doing um, uh, folk acoustic open mic nights. But I just, you know, for a cry of attention, just because I wanted to do something different, I put funny lyrics in my songs. Um, and then very, very, very slowly and gradually, I realized that what I was doing was actually closer to stand-up comedy than folk music. So that's why my songs are sort of somewhere in between comedy and regular, as you say. So the funny music was a gateway into stand-up comedy. You weren't already dabbling in stand-up before yeah. you were doing music. Yes, it was that way around. There's a lot of musical comedians who do the same sort of thing as me, but they came through the opposite door, yeah. where they started doing stand-up, and then they realised, you know what this needs? It needs a ukulele. Yeah. And so it became then more musical, whereas in my case it was the other way around, where I started being extremely regular, but then realised, actually, since I'm trying to make people laugh, I should probably do jokes between the songs. And I should probably actually stand up and I should probably talk about myself a bit more. You know, these are all things that even now come very unnaturally to me. But that's because of the, the door through which I came. Interesting. We'll get into YouTube and performing in a little bit. But I want to start out very early on. Can you remember what your first musical experience was? I mean, we're getting very deep here. This yes. is like a therapy session. The yes, earliest please. musical memory that I have is sat in front of my parents' record player listening to The Beatles. And when I was very young, the two albums that I'd listened to over and over again were Sgt. Pepper and Abbey Road. And I knew them off by heart. And um, I even knew which instrument came out of which speaker because I used to play with the balance and play with the stereo. I was obsessed with those two albums. And then I became obsessed with the Beatles in general. And to this day, it's my earliest music memory. And my second earliest is a bad knockoff of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, which I'm not as keen on anymore. How do you knock off? It's already a pretty bad musical. How do you? So the official version that most people have, the front mm. cover is like a colourful coat hanger that says Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And it's mm. got names like Jason Donovan or Philip Schofield. Yeah. And the one that my parents had, 
I don't think it was an official one. I think it came with their new Hi-Fi. It has a compact disc player, so we're going to supply you with some compact discs. And one of them was this sort of... I don't know when it was from, but it wasn't the real Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoats. It was some bad singers. But that's the one that I knew best. That's the one that I grew up with. I'd love to find it. I just have to remember what it was called. I used to occasionally listen to the other one, the real one, mm. if, I don't know, if it was playing at somebody else's house or they played it at school. And I wouldn't be familiar with it. I'd be like, this this is being played with a bit too much aplomb. <laughs> but that happened a lot when I was a kid because I had, um, well, I still have perfect pitch. So it meant that I was okay. very picky about things not being quite right as right. they should be. And, yeah, you know, yeah. sometimes people would sing a song and I'd say, no, that's not how it goes. Why not? It's in the wrong key. <laughs> and I learned eventually to stop doing that. <laughs> <laughs> how did you work out you had perfect pitch? Um, I think my parents worked it out because every okay. time I sang something, they'd play it on the, the compact disc player. And like, how did you know that was the right key? Or I would complain that's in the wrong key. And they'd say, how do you know? Yeah, yeah. And I thought, well, doesn't everybody know? It either sounds correct or it doesn't. You know, I had to eventually learn that most people, like literally 999 out of 1,000 people, mm don't need to hear exactly the key it's in and they yeah. remember it. I Weird thing about because I've got a perfect pitch, there's actually some things that I find harder than most musicians. So, for example, if you tell me to sing or play a familiar song in an unfamiliar key, I have to work harder to transpose it because uh, in my mind, that's a different song. Yes, that's interesting. I've got friends who have perfect pitch, but they've all done it through. They've, they've all intentionally gone out of the way and really practiced to have perfect pitch. So it's a learned skill. I guess you don't actually one. need music lessons to have perfect pitch. No. You need music lessons to realize what it is that you have. So, for example, yeah. someone that's never had a music lesson in their life could always sing something in the original key. Mm. Um, but then it takes music lessons to realize that key must be C and right. so on. So did you have music lessons at any point? Yeah, I had uh, guitar lessons when I was about seven. Actually, the first um, education I had on guitar was my mum taught me to play because she was a children's party entertainer. And she taught me like the first three or four chords. And then I got a proper guitar teacher. Cool. Then I got another proper guitar teacher. Yeah. And, and now I can still play. <laughs> That's a really good guitar teacher. Then I became a guitar play. teacher. Wow. I've, I've passed it on. <laughs> what got you into the idea of performing? So we talked about it being music first that you wanted to perform. I used to sometimes go to these summer camps and I'd, I'd be the guy with the guitar because I, I was yeah. that guy they are you know, for, for a cry of attention really yeah. and then later when I was a student I used to take my guitar to open mic nights because my uni, York yeah. Uni, there was um, lots of different college bars and they all had um, plenty of opportunities to play in front of people mm. and I, I don't know what drove me to do it I just thought well I, I, I can, so I'm going to give it a go. Why not? Was it just sort of the done thing if you own a guitar and you know some songs? The yeah, loads of, loads of my friends at uni that had guitars, like they'd play their songs or they'd play covers and, you know, it would just be a, a fun thing to do. Why not? Yeah. And then it never, ever occurred to me that that should be something I should, you know, pursue as a, a proper hobby with a capital H or let alone a, a, a job. You know, that was never the idea and it still isn't. I just haven't found a proper job yet. <laughs> yeah, let me know when you get one. I think yeah. we could all do the proper job. <laughs> I think, you know, I'm, hopefully one of these days I'm going to eventually get, a, I'll settle down and I'll become a chartered quantity surveyor or a systems analyst. I realise we've, we've joked about <laughs> getting a real job, but obviously this must be profitable in some way. Was there a point where you realised that you could perform as a career? Well, I always did jobs on the side. Yeah. Um, so for for the longest time, I was a, um, a tour guide driving people around London in, oh, cool. in old Mini Coopers. It was a great job. But then there came a time when um, I didn't have time for all of the various jobs I was juggling. Yes. I was doing YouTube, I was doing uh, gigs, and I was being a tour guide. And there wasn't time for all three. And I looked mm. at my uh, timetable and my calendar and my finances. And one day, completely by surprise, 
I stopped doing the day job and I had to fill in on forms. I had to be a musician or comedian. Mm. And it, you know, I'm still not used to it. I still struggle to tell people that that is my actual job. That's what's paying my mortgage. You know, I am a musician because musicians aren't real people. No. They're not serious people. I can't no. be one of them. So I don't think even if I'm 75 and I'm still you know, making my money as a comedian or YouTuber, I won't be able to admit it to myself. I certainly won't be able to admit it to my family. But most people I know that are performers, um, they juggle their fun job yeah. with a serious job. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a very, very normal thing, especially now in, in this economy. Do you have a songwriting process? Well, every song's a bit different, but sure. in general, if people ask me, do you do the music first and the lyrics later, or the lyrics first and add music, which way around is it? And I always tell people, you, you have to do both at the same yeah. time, because if you have all, all your lyrics finished, mm. and you then try and put a tune around it, the tune is going to be compromised and weird. Yeah. And the, the only way that you're going to end up with something you're happy with, it, the way it works for me anyway, is if you write them both at the same time, and don't settle on one until you're happy with both. Uh, my process, I guess, is think of the the idea first. First of mm. all, I've got to figure out what's this going to be about. What's what's going to make me laugh about it? Um, and again, because I'm a musical comedian, um, there has to be something funny about the song. It's been a very long time since I wrote a serious song. Music. So once I've got that idea, I'll then probably have in my head like one or two rhyming couplets that I'm hell bent on, like things I know are going to be in the song. And this is the the fun stage. This is when I'm coming up with things that make me laugh, things that I know are going to be a good idea and stuff that really only appeals to me. But then comes stage two, where I have to make it make sense and make it appeal to other people. And that's when all the scaffolding goes in. And that's when it becomes all about making sure that it's well-structured and coming up with rhymes and reorganizing it so that the weakest rhymes come in the second line, so that a payoff comes on the fourth line and so on and so on, all this technical stuff, yeah. until finally there's something I'm happy with. But like I said, it's different for every song. There was one particular song I did. I have a song from a long time ago called Martin Was a Monkey. And that started out life as a poem. Um, and then after I'd finished the poem, I thought, actually, I would like more people to hear this. And mm. the only way I can get more people to hear it is if I put it in my live act and make it a song. So that's right. why it's got such an unusually rigid syllable structure. Interesting. You perform for children as well. These days, yes, These days. mostly. How did that come about? That was a complete accident. So Good. I was doing for many years um, songs for grown-ups. Mm. And what happened was there was one year when my show at the Edinburgh Fringe happened to be in a venue that usually is used for kids shows. It was mm. in the Pleasance Igloo or the Pleasance... I can't actually remember what the official name of the room is, but everyone the called pligloo. it an igloo. The pligloo. Everyone called it the igloo because it right. looked like an igloo. That makes and sense. until 6pm, all the shows in there were for children. Okay. My show was at 8pm. So right. it wasn't a kid's show. It just happened to use that venue. And because my songs are often written from the point of view of a child, because I find that quite funny, mm. um, or they're sort of quite innocent sounding, or just the fact that it's musical comedy at all, yeah. I think for those reasons, people thought, it looked like a children's show. Right, okay. And then I, I had a few parents come to me uh, that year and they said, you know what, your show, uh, we, we like your show, but have you ever considered taking all the swearing out? Because if you did, <laughs> you would then have a great kid show on your hands. <laughs> and enough people said it, including my agent. And then I thought, um, actually, maybe that's not a bad idea. So I did one or two shows for a company that I now do lots of gigs for called Comedy Club for Kids. Mm. And the premise is they get comedians to basically take the swearing out of their routine yeah. and perform to children. And it means that kids get a chance to see comedians that normally perform to grown-ups. And I did that show a few times and really enjoyed it. And I thought, well, I'm going to attempt a full hour of family-friendly stuff. 
So I then went back to the fringe with a very similar show to the one before, but some of the songs had been swapped out. Um, I wrote with some help from some friends of mine one or two extra songs that were deliberately for children. Mm. And then that show became the best-selling show I'd done at the fringe, and I sort wow. of was uh, compelled by how well that show had gone to keep <laughs> yeah. doing it. And I've now, it's it's been many years since that show, but I now mostly do, when I'm doing my solo shows, I'm, I mostly do it for children. So I've become, who would have thought, I followed in my mum's footsteps and become a children's <laughs> party entertainer. Is it literally as simple as just taking the swearing out? Well, sometimes it is as simple as taking the swearing out, mm. but I think the only reason I found it that easy is because my material was already quite child-friendly. Yeah. I actually, I, I tell people, I often joke that, oh, I've got some adult stuff too, but that's filth. There isn't actually a lot of filth. Yeah. Most of the stuff I write, I think it's a lot, it, it's funnier mm. to me to write stuff that the whole family can enjoy. Third verse, same as the first and the second. Fourth verse, similar to the first, second and third. Fifth verse, completely different from the first, second, third and fourth. The thing that I find hard if you're writing something for kids is not to make sure you're not including any swearing. Hmm. It's to make sure that you're not relying on references to things that the kids have no hope of understanding. Sure. Because kids, they're not stupid, yeah. they just have nowhere near as much world experience as grown-ups. They and just so... don't care about the minor strikes. Exactly, and if I wanted to, to write a song that had a reference to, uh, let's say, uh, Neil Kinnock. Right. <laughs> See, to me, that's, that's quite a funny reference, because yeah. it's uh, why are you talking about someone who's not been involved in politics for 30, 40 years? <laughs> You can't do that with kids. You can't fall back on the, that's something no one's thought about for a long time. Mm. You also can't do um, references to TV shows and movies yeah. because they haven't seen most of them. And if you do want to do references that kids understand, it has to be the programs that they like. And I don't like a lot of kids TV now. So I, yeah. I have to rely on, you know, if I'm referencing things, it has to be things they know about, like food or the weather <laughs> or animals. How do you find... Younger people as an audience, are they more appreciative? Do they heckle less? When a kid's audience appreciates what I'm doing, it, it's a really fantastic feeling because kids, they don't pretend to like it. Okay. When you're doing um, a gig for grown-ups, they know it's a comedy show and they have to behave themselves, they have to clap, and yeah, worse yeah. still, they have to laugh yes. when something has the cadence of a joke. Mm. But kids don't do that, so when they laugh, they mean it, and that's great. Mm. However, <laughs> on the other hand, kids are so unpredictable yeah. And they can be, sometimes they can be really annoying. Sometimes the, what I'm doing on stage is not so much entertaining them as babysitting. Yes. And yeah. I've learned if you show the slightest sign of weakness, if you sort of tell one kid to shut up, no matter how funny it is to like suddenly go, shut up, the other kids will cotton on and they'll start making noise. Yeah, and then yeah. it doesn't matter if you're the best comedian in the world, like you've lost them. There's, yeah. there's really not a lot you can do yeah, yeah. once the audience have decided that they're against you. It's very similar to um, drunken hecklers on a Friday night. So, you know, you actually learn a lot about how to treat drunken audience members from how to treat kids. Yeah. Because, again, you can't fall back on the, shut up, because it won't work. Yeah. It's interesting. We were talking about YouTube earlier, and a lot of your YouTube stuff feels... Uh, I really hate the word edutainment, but it feels 
uh, educational and entertaining, but in a very family-friendly way. The fact that there's a word for that implies that the two are not supposed to go together. Well, you quite. Know, it's either entertaining yeah. or you learn something. It can't possibly do both. So, yeah, that irritates me too. That <laughs> Good, I'm glad. How did you come to make content for YouTube? The first video that I made for YouTube was uh, an episode of Unfinished London. Mm. And we made it because uh, me and my friend Paul, who we still make it together, we were looking for work in proper telly. Right. He wanted to do um, stuff behind the camera. He wanted to be either a camera operator or director, and I wanted to write and possibly present. We both just wanted to be involved in that world, and so we decided to hire some equipment from... I can't remember how we did it, but we got some equipment from someone, and we made this film and put it on this video-sharing website, youtube.com. And um, the reason that it was in the style that it is, where it's full of jokes, is because I thought that was the best way to tell the story. Yeah where the jokes don't get in the way of the, the thing that you're educating about. The jokes help you remember it. The jokes help you learn what, what it's about. Yeah. And um, to our delight, people enjoyed it and they asked us to make more. And so we are now 10 years later still <laughs> making more. So you must have been on YouTube quite early then because it's sort of, it feels like such an established thing, but I guess, as you said, this video sharing website, that is exactly what it was 10 years ago. Just, yeah. This people, is somewhere you can put videos. I mean, if I tell people that my first video is from 2009, yeah. you know, they might react and say, well, that means you've been a YouTuber for 10 years. And I'll tell them that's not how it works. No. Because um, when we uploaded the video in those days, like I said, YouTube.com, it was just this website where yeah. you'd share your video. But there was no such thing as doing YouTube yeah. for a career. It was that, that, that was a ridiculous notion. Yeah, and it only occurred to me that I was doing it as a career, like, in about less than a year ago, really. Do you have a favorite video that you've uploaded to YouTube? My favorite video series that I've done, because mm. I've done lots of series. Yeah. There was ones about politics. There was ones about maps with Mark Cooper Jones. My favorite is Unfinished London, because mm. that was the first one that we did. And that's like, that's our baby. And I think that that's something that we were always going to make because it combines all of my interests and because mm. it's um, history which I've now become very interested in and geeky about and it's be you know we've managed to put our sense of humor in it so I'm very pleased with those ones uh, it's either that or one time I uploaded a video that was only about 30 seconds long that proved that the intro to Paul McCartney's song new was very similar to the theme music from button moon I was very happy <laughs> with that video but only about 1,000 people watched it yeah it's always the stuff that you're proud of that people tend not to care about. It's well, this is interesting because I um, I mean, those videos like the ones I was just talking about, Unfinished London, Map Men and the ones about politics, you know, they they take a lot of time yeah. and a lot of hard work and a lot of money goes into those. Yeah. And yet the video on my channel that's had the most views is a live clip mm. of me doing my syllables trick in, in a gig. And that must have taken me about 10 minutes to edit <laughs> together and put online. And that's yeah. had seven point something million views. And then, you know, the other ones that I've spent months working on have got nowhere near as many yeah. and what that just goes to show is that you cannot control these things that you know yeah. the the algorithm yes. will decide for you yeah yeah a lot of people who talk about creating content for youtube tend to say if you can document things that you're doing already rather than making stuff explicitly and exclusively for YouTube, you tend to get a better reaction. So maybe that's the case in this. It's the thing that you had already done. You'd already done the performance. That's true. But then on the other side of the argument, you don't want too much stuff on YouTube, which is just people waking up and sitting on the end of their bed and saying, OK, so today I'm going to talk about <laughs> myself. Uh, you know, you, you do have to put the work in and make yeah. sure that there is a, a reason why you're uploading. Yeah, because I think true. there's a lot of people on YouTube that they don't have 
the thing in their brain that asks, why do people care? <laughs> this is yeah. something that, I mean, YouTube has changed so much yeah. in the last 10 years. You know, it used to be the place you go to find weird stuff yeah. that used to be on TV years ago. And, yeah. you know, you'd never watch a video that was more than three minutes long. Yeah. And now um, people spend more time watching YouTube than TV. Yeah. And it's a lot of people, you can very, very cheaply get cameras that are fantastic quality nowadays. Yeah. But um, it's people just talking about themselves. Yeah. And it's, you know, people, they spend most of the videos saying like, share, and subscribe. Or today I'm going to do something a bit different. Like, take. <laughs> no one cares. Well, I don't care, but apparently <laughs> young whippersnappers do now. Yeah, I'm going to directly address the audience. YouTube used to be like you've been framed, but without an editor. Yes. Yes, that's a great analogy. There wasn't anyone in the back room going, this is just a bit lame to go on telly. That was one of the appeals of, of YouTube in the early yeah. days was you'd find stuff that was a bit too weird for TV. Do you <laughs> yeah, remember yeah. The, the very early days of the internet when uh, it was all about flash animations? And yes. Flash is like, it's almost completely disappeared yeah, now. Yeah. But um, there used to be a website that I loved called rathergood.com. I, I revisited rathergood.com and all the other things that we used to spread and share around. Mm. You know, when I was 15, we used to, can you believe it? We used to send emails to each other and say, Ooh. have you seen this thing I found on the internet? <laughs> and um, you know what? They weren't very good. <laughs> we accepted it then because that was yeah. all there was. You know, was. you know, the internet was for weird things like hamster dance yeah. or the dancing baby or spoon guard. And we used to think that was so funny. But nowadays we are like absolutely bombarded with about you know, something that is five times better than that every minute of the day on your mm -hmm. Twitter feed. Yeah. Whereas in the olden days, you used to, you know, something that was just about good enough to make you laugh that much would come along every few months or so. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, the internet is so different now. It's become a scary, horrible place. So you mentioned a few questions ago that it was only sort of a year ago that you would consider yourself a YouTuber, whatever that means. Yeah. Um, was there a specific video you uploaded or a specific content or interaction that made you go, oh, okay, no, this is something that I am actually doing? No, it's very slow and gradual. It, when we started putting stuff on YouTube, it was um, you know, a showreel. And the idea was to try and show it to TV companies and say, could you please give me a job? Look, yes. I've done this for a hobby. Yeah, yeah. And then very, very slowly, um, the views were going up and I'm now doing, I, I get each video gets sponsored. Mm. Um, but it's hard to say when was the precise moment, which was the precise video when it stopped being a hobby and started being a job. It's, um, I don't think there was one moment. I think it slowly crept up on me. Yeah. It's still slowly creeping Creeping. up on me. Right, so this is my signature end question. Yes. And it relies on your own personal experience, so your answer is going to be different to anyone else's well, I'm answer. about this one now, because well, if this yeah. is the last question, mm. my answer's got to be a good one. Well, hopefully. If it's not, this will be a big old anticlimax. I mean, it'll be on me for booking you, really. Here we, well, uh-oh. What is one piece of advice that you would give to someone who wants to do what you do? That's extremely hard to answer, and I'll tell you why, because no one likes to acknowledge just how big a role luck plays. Oh, yeah. In becoming a, a YouTuber. You know, I have a lot of people saying to me, well, you know, you've got you've got a few subscribers now. Can you tell me what I should do to get to get, you know, to the same position that you're in? Mm. And my answer is uh, actually no, because the only advice I can give you is specifically what worked for me, mm. um, which is just to keep on doing it yeah. over and over and over again until eventually when you don't get a proper job as a chartered quantity surveyor or systems analyst, you find you have enough subscribers. Mm. You basically if if. Um, if your stuff is good and if you're doing something that nobody else is doing, if you keep at it, you, you might have some success. But YouTube is full of thousands and thousands of people who are extremely talented and what they're making is great, 
but only five people have seen each of their videos because they're just Jay's talking about me. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, if someone says to me, I want to start a YouTube channel from scratch, mm. how do I get immediately to half a million subscribers? You can't. Yeah. You, I don't know. It's yeah, yeah. Um, the only reason I've managed it is because I've been doing it for a very long time and I got my foot in the door before YouTube became what it is now. Yeah. And I was unbelievably lucky. I mean, for example, my the video of the syllables trick that went viral and has got mm. 7 million views, that was entirely by accident. The way that happened was I uploaded that video ages ago. It got about 30,000 views. I was very happy with that. And then one day it disappeared from YouTube. Mm. Someone tweeted me and said, what happened to your syllables video? And I was like, oh, I don't know. Let's have a look. Oh, it's gone. And I sent an email to YouTube saying, my video's gone. They said, you deleted it. And I said, no, I didn't. And they said, yes, you did. And I said, no, I didn't. And they said, yes, you did. And so on and so on. Until eventually they said, well, look, we're sorry, but it's, it's gone. So we recommend you upload it again. And I was furious. Yeah. Uh, yeah but yeah. then I found it. It was buried on a hard drive somewhere. I made some slight changes. I made it a bit shorter, gave it a better thumbnail, uploaded it again. And then within a month, it got up to one million. I'd never had anything like a, a million views for a thing before. Interesting. And the next time I went into the YouTube space in, in King's Cross, I said to the people that worked there, like, was that, is that a favor that you did for me to say sorry for deleting it? And they said, no, absolutely not. We, we don't ah. do that. We can't do that. Yeah, yeah. And it turns out it was because the first video got deleted and I uploaded it again. And I, I don't know what happened, but I, I seemed to make the algorithm happy that that video went viral. And then that got my other videos views. And then it all started, once I sort of got some momentum going, I started getting more views and subscribers. But had that not happened, I wouldn't be here today. I'd be sat at a desk being a chartered quantity surveyor and I'd be happy. <laughs> I think it's a, it's a silly thing to do to try and work out what the algorithm wants mm. because the people that work at YouTube, even they don't know, yeah. it's famously sort of secretive black box technology. Yeah. Um, so people that have success on YouTube, they will sort of, um, it's like that game with the, you do something and then the pellet gives out food and you do it again. It's, we're oh, doing yeah. that to try yeah. and please the algorithm with a capital A to Pavlov's make sure that algorithm. we keep, yeah, like yeah. that to, to make sure that we keep on getting the views that we, you know, now need for the money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we don't know, well, I, I don't know what the formula is. I just know that I've been unbelievably lucky and I just better keep on doing it and not change a thing. Have you seen that episode of Malcolm in the Middle? where his dad becomes really good at bowling temporarily. Yes. It's like that. Yeah. So yeah. Um, if you could um, cut to a clip where um, it, you see uh, what's his face from Breaking Bad and he's, he's like doing these little rituals with the bowling ball each time to try and it, it, it's basically that. It's interesting you bring up the luck thing. This is what I tell people if I get similar questions, but I sort of believe that you can kind of make your own luck by sort of doing a variety of things or kind of trying to work out what it is you've lucked out on before and then not necessarily recreating that but understanding why it happened Do you well you obviously making... still need to know what you're doing and you need to work sure. hard and put the hours in and but you also need the luck you know sure. it's you it's not fair to say that if you're just lucky you'll be fine yeah but it's also sadly not fair to say that if you just work hard and your stuff is good you'll also be fine it, you you have to have both jay foreman thank you so much for your time thank you so much for your time Thanks again to Jay for coming to talk to me and uh, let me know a bit about his background and share that information with you people. If you want to find Jay, you can of course go to Jay's website, jayforman.co.uk. You can also go to YouTube and find Jay Foreman on there and you can go to at Jay Foreman, all one word, on Twitter. Jay is J-A-Y, Foreman is F-O-R-E-M-A-N. 
and I'm pretty sure that in every instance it's J Foreman one word with no space. You can of course find me all over the place, uh, live streams on Twitch at LT Guitarist, I'm also at LT Guitarist on Twitter and would you believe it, TikTok. For my many years of video content, you can go to youtube.com forward slash Liam Taylor Guitar. You can also find Liam Taylor Guitar on Instagram. Oh, and uh, yeah, subscribe on whatever app you're listening to. I should really break that out earlier. Anyway, I'm going because I'm rambling. See you later.